Chapter 12, Part 2 of The Hope of the Gospel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jordan. The Hope of the Gospel by George MacDonald. Chapter 12 The Hope of the Universe. Part 2. I would now lead my companion a little closer to what the Apostle says in the 19th verse, to come closer, if we may, to the idea that burned in his heart when he wrote what we call the 8th chapter of his epistle to the Romans. Oh, how far ahead he seems in his hope for the creation of the footsore and halting brigade of Christians at present crossing the world. He knew Christ and could therefore look into the will of the Father. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. At the head of one of his poems, Henry Vaughan has this Latin translation of the verse. I do not know whether he found or made it, but it is closer to its sense than ours. Etenim res creati, exerto capite observantis expectant, revelationem filiorum dei. For the things created, watching with head thrust out, await the revelation of the sons of God. Why? Because God has subjected the creation to vanity, in the hope that the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For this double deliverance, from corruption and the consequent subjection to vanity, the creation is eagerly watching. The bondage of corruption God encounters and counteracts by subjection to vanity. Corruption is the breaking up of the essential idea, the falling away from the original indwelling and life-causing thought. It is met by the suffering which itself causes. That suffering is for redemption, for deliverance. It is the life in the corrupting thing that makes the suffering possible. It is the live part, not the corrupted part, that suffers. It is the redeemable, not the doomed thing, that is subjected to vanity. The race in which evil, that is, corruption, is at work, needs, as the one means for its rescue, subjection to vanity. It is the one hope against the supremacy of corruption, and the whole encircling, harbouring, and helping creation must, for the sake of man, its head, and for its own further sake too, share in this subjection to vanity, with its hope of deliverance. Corruption brings in vanity, causes empty, aching gaps in vitality. This aching is what most people regard as evil. It is the unpleasant cure of evil. It takes all shapes of suffering, of the body, of the mind, of the heart, of the spirit. It is altogether beneficent. Without this ever-invading vanity, what hope would there be for the rich and powerful, accustomed to and set upon their own way? What hope for the self-indulgent, the conceited, the greedy, the miserly? 
The more things men seek, the more varied the things they imagine they need, the more are they subject to vanity, all the forms of which may be summed up in the word disappointment. He who would not house with disappointment must seek the incorruptible, the true. He must break the bondage of havings and shows, of rumours and praises and pretences, and selfish pleasures. He must come out of the false into the real, out of the darkness into the light, out of the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. To bring men to break with corruption, the gulf of the inane yawns before them. Aghast in soul, they cry, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, and beyond the abyss begin to espy the eternal world of truth. Note now the hope that the creation itself also, as something besides and other than God's men and women, shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The creation, then, is to share in the deliverance and liberty and glory of the children of God. Deliverance from corruption, liberty from bondage, must include escape from the very home and goal of corruption, namely, death, and that in all its kinds and degrees. When you say, then, that for the children of God there is no more death, remember that the deliverance of the creature is from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Dead, in bondage to corruption, how can they share in the liberty of the children of life? Where is their deliverance? If such, then, be the words of the Apostle, does he, or does he not, I ask, hold the idea of the immortality of the animals? If you say, all he means is, that the creatures alive at the coming of the Lord will be set free from the tyranny of corrupt man, I refer you to what I have already said of the poverty of such an interpretation. Accepting the failure of justice and love toward those that have passed away, are passing, and must yet, ere that coming, be born to pass away for ever. For the man whose heart aches to adore a faithful creator, what comfort lies in such good news? He must perish for lack of a true God. O oh, lame conclusion to the grand prophecy! Is God a mocker who will not be mocked? Is there a past to God with which he has done? Is time too much for him? Is he God enough to care for those that happen to live at one present time, but not God enough to care for those that happened to live at another present time? Or did he care for them, but could not help them? Shall we not rather believe that the vessels of less honour, the misused, the maltreated, shall be filled with creative wine at last? Shall not the children have little dogs under the father's table, to which to let fall plenty of crumbs? If there was such provision for the sparrows of our Lord's time of sojourn, and he will bring yet better with him when he comes again, how should the dead sparrows and their sorrows be passed over of him 
with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning? Or would the deliverance of the creatures into the groaned-for liberty have been much worth mentioning, if within a few years their share in the glory of the sons of God was to die away in death? But the gifts of God are without repentance. How St. Paul longs for and loves liberty! Only true lover of liberty is he who will die to give it to his neighbour. St. Paul loved liberty more than his own liberty. But then, see how different his notion of the liberty, on its way to the children of God, from the dull modern fancies of heaven still set forth in the popular hymn-books. The new heaven and the new earth will at least be a heaven and an earth. What would the newest earth be to the old children without its animals? Barer than the heavens emptied of the constellations that are called by their names. Then, if the earth must have its animals, why not the old ones, already dear? The sons of God are not a new race of sons of God, but the old ones, glorified. Why a new race of animals, and not the old ones, glorified? The apostle says they are to share in the liberty of the sons of God. Will it not then be a liberty like ours? A liberty always ready to be offered on the altar of love? What sweet service will not that of the animals be thus offered? How sweet also to minister to them in their turns of need! For to us doubtless will they then flee for help in any difficulty, as now they flee from us in dread of our tyranny. What lovelier feature in the newness of the new earth than the old animals glorified with us in their home with us, our common home, the house of our Father, each kind and unfailing pleasure to the other. Ah, what horses! Ah, what dogs! Ah, what wild beasts and what birds in the air! The whole redeemed creation goes to make up St. Paul's heaven. He had learned of him who would leave no one out, who made the excuse for his murderers, that they did not know what they were doing. Is not the prophecy on the groaning creation to have its fulfilment in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness? Does not this involve its existence beyond what we call this world? Why should it not then involve immortality? Would it not be more like the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, to know no life but the Immortal? To create nothing that could die? To slay nothing but evil? For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. But what is this liberty of the children of God, for which the whole creation is waiting? The children themselves are waiting for it. When they have it, then will their house and retinue, the creation whose fate hangs on that of the children, Share it with them. What is this liberty? All liberty must, of course, consist in the realization of the ideal harmony between the creative will and the created life, in the correspondence of the creature's active being to the creator's idea, which is his substantial soul. In other words, 
the creature's liberty is what his obedience to the law of his existence the will of his maker effects for him the instant a soul moves counter to the will of its prime cause the universe is its prison it dashes against the walls of it and the sweetest of its uplifting and sustaining forces at once becomes its manacles and fetters but saint paul is not at the moment thinking either of the metaphysical notion of liberty or of its religious realization he has in his thought the birth of the soul's consciousness of freedom and not only so that the creation groaneth and travaileth but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the spirit even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the redemption of our body we are not free he implies until our body is redeemed then all the creation will be free with us he regards the creation as part of our embodiment the whole creation is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of god that is the redemption of their body the idea of which extends to their whole material envelopment with all the life that belongs to it for this as for them the bonds of corruption must fall away it must enter into the same liberty with them and be that for which it was created a vital temple perfected by the unbroken indwelling of its divinity the liberty here intended it may be unnecessary to say is not that essential liberty freedom from sin but the completing of the redemption of the spirit by the redemption of the body the perfecting of the greater by its necessary complement of the less evil has been constantly at work turning our house of the body into a prison rendering it more opaque and heavy and insensible casting about it bands and searments and filling it with aches and pains the freest soul the purest of lovers the man most incapable of anything mean would not for all his mighty liberty yet feel absolutely at large while chained to a dying body nor the less hampered but the more that that dying body was his own the redemption of the body therefore the making of it for the man a genuine perfected responsive house alive is essential to the apostle's notion of a man's deliverance the new man must have a new body with a new heaven and earth saint paul never thinks of himself as released from body he desires a perfect one and of a nobler sort he would inhabit a heaven-made house and give up the earth-made one suitable only to this lower stage of life infected and unsafe from the first and now much dilapidated in the service of the master who could so easily give him a better he wants a spiritual body a body that will not thwart but second the needs and aspirations of the spirit he had in his mind i presume such a body as the lord died with changed by the interpenetrating of the creative indwelling will to a heavenly body 
the body with which he rose a body like the lord's is i imagine necessary to bring us into true and perfect contact with the creation of which there must be multitudinous phases whereof we cannot now be even aware the way in which both good and indifferent people alike lay the blame on their bodies and look to death rather than god-aided struggle to set them at liberty appears to me low and cowardly it is the master fleeing from the slave despising at once and fearing him we must hold the supremacy over our bodies but we must not despise body it is a divine thing body and soul are in the image of god and the lord of life was last seen in the glorified body of his death i believe that he still wears that body but we shall do better without these bodies that suffer and grow old which may indeed as some think be but the outer cases the husks of our real bodies endlessly helpful as they have been to us and that in a measure incalculable through their very subjection to vanity we are yet surely not in altogether and only helpful company so long as the houses wherein we live have so many spots and stains in them which friendly death it may be can alone wash out so many weather-eaten and self-engendered sores which the builder's hand pulling down and rebuilding of fresh and nobler material alone can banish when the sons then are free when their bodies are redeemed they will lift up with them the lower creation into their liberty saint paul seems to believe that perfection in their kind awaits also the humbler inhabitants of our world its advent to follow immediately on the manifestation of the sons of god for our sakes and their own they have been made subject to vanity for our sakes and their own they shall be restored and glorified that is raised higher with us has the question no interest for you it would have much had you now what you must one day have a heart big enough to love any life god has thought fit to create had the lord cared no more for what of his father's was lower than himself than you do for what of your father's is lower than you you would not now be looking for any sort of redemption i have omitted in my quotations the word adoption used in both english versions it is no translation of the greek word for which it stands it is used by saint paul as meaning the same thing with the phrase the redemption of the body a fact to bring the interpretation given it at once into question falser translation if we look at the importance of the thing signified and its utter loss in the word used to represent it not to mention the substitution for that of the apostle of an idea not only untrue but actively mischievous was never made the thing saint paul means in the word he uses has simply nothing to do with adoption nothing whatever in the beginning of the fourth chapter of his epistle to the galatians 
he makes perfectly clear what he intends by it. His unusual word means the father's recognition, when he comes of age, of the child's relation to him, by giving him his fitting place of dignity in the house. And here the deliverance of the body is the act of this recognition by the great father, completing and crowning and declaring the freedom of the man, the perfecting of the last lingering remnant of his deliverance. St. Paul's word, I repeat, has nothing to do with adoption. It means the manifestation of the grown-up sons of God, the showing of those as sons who have always been his children, the bringing of them out before the universe in such suitable attire and with such fit attendance that to look at them is to see what they are, the sons of the house, such to whom their elder brother applied the words, I said ye are gods. If then the sons grown within themselves, looking to be lifted up, and the other inhabitants of the same world groan with them, and cry, Shall they not also be lifted up? Have they not also a faithful creator? He must be a selfish man indeed, who does not desire that it should be so. It appears then, that, in the expectation of the apostle, the new heavens and the new earth, in which dwell the sons of God, are to be inhabited by blessed animals also, inferior but risen, and I think, yet to rise in continuous development. Here let me revert a moment, and say a little more clearly and strongly a thing I have already said. When the apostle speaks of the whole creation, is it possible he should have dismissed the animals from his thoughts, to regard the trees and flowers bearing their part in the groaning and travailing of the sore-burdened world? Or could he, animals and trees and flowers forgotten, have intended by the creation that groaned and travailed, only the bulk of the earth, its mountains and valleys, plains and seas and rivers, its agglomeration of hard and soft, of hot and cold, of moist and dry? If he could, then the portion that least can be supposed to feel or know is regarded by the apostle of love as immeasurably more important than the portion that loves and moans and cries. Nor is this all, for thereupon he attributes the suffering faculty of the excluded, far more sentient portion at least, to the altogether inferior and less sentient, and upon the ground of that faculty builds the vision of its redemption. If it could be so, then how should the seeming apostle's affected rhapsody of hope be to us other than a mere puffball of falsest rhetoric, a special pleading for nothing, as degrading to art as objectless in nature? Much would I like to know clearly what animals the apostle saw on his travels, or around his home when he had one, their conditions and their relations to their superiors. Anyhow, they were often suffering creatures, 
and paul was a man growing hourly in likeness to his maker and theirs therefore overflowing with sympathy perhaps as he wrote there passed through his mind a throb of pity for the beasts he had to kill at ephesus if the lord said very little about animals could he have done more for them than tell men that his father cared for them he has thereby wakened and is wakening in the hearts of men a seed his father planted it grows but slowly yet has already borne a little precious fruit his loving friend saint francis has helped him and many others have tried and are now trying to help him whoever sows the seed of that seed the father planted is helping the son our behaviour to the animals our words concerning them are seed either good or bad in the hearts of our children no one can tell to what the animals might not grow even here on the old earth under the old heaven if they were but dealt with according to their true position in regard to us they are in sense very real and divine our kindred if i call them our poor relations it is to suggest that poor relations are often ill-used relatives poor or rich may be such ill-behaved self-assertive disagreeable persons that we cannot treat them as we gladly would but our endeavour should be to develop every true relation he who is prejudiced against a relative because he is poor is himself an ill-bred relative and to be ill-bred is an excluding fault with the court of the high countries there poverty is welcome vulgarity inadmissible those who love certain animals selfishly pampering them as so many mothers do their children with worse results that they may be loved of them in return betray them to their enemies they are not lovers of animals but only of favourites and do their part to make the rest of the world dislike animals theirs are the dogs that inhospitably growl and bark and snap moving the indifferent to dislike and confirming the unfriendly in their antagonism any dog parliament met in the interests of their kind would condemn such dogs to be discreetly bitten and their mistresses to be avoided and certainly if animals are intended to live and grow she is the enemy of any individual animal who stunts his moral and intellectual development by unwise indulgence of whatever nature be the heaven of the animals that animal is not in the fair way to enter it the education of the lower lies at the door of the higher and in true education is truest kindness but what shall i say of such as for any kind of end subject animals to torture i dare hardly trust myself to the expression of my judgment of their conduct in this regard we are investigators we are not doing it for our own sakes but for the sakes of others our fellow men the higher your motive is 
the greater is the blame of your unrighteousness. Must we congratulate you on such a love for your fellows as inspires you to wrong the weaker than they, those that are without helper against you? Shall we count the man worthy who, for the sake of his friend, robbed another man too feeble to protect himself and too poor to punish his assailant? For the sake of your children, would you waylay a beggar? No real good can grow in the soil of injustice. I cannot help suspecting, however, that the desire to know has a greater share in the enormity than the desire to help. Alas for the science that will sacrifice the law of righteousness but to behold a law of sequence. The tree of knowledge will never prove to man the tree of life. There is no law says, Thou shalt know. A thousand laws cry out, Thou shalt do right. These men are a law unto themselves, and what a law! It is the old story. The greed of knowing casts out righteousness and mercy and faith. Whatever believed, a benefit may or may not thus be wrought for higher creatures. The injustice to the lower is nowise affected. Justice has no respect of persons, but they are surely the weaker that stand more in need of justice. Labour is a law of the universe, and not an evil. Death is a law of this world at least, and is not an evil. Torture is the law of no world, but the hell of human invention. Labour and death are for the best good of those that labour and die. They are laws of life. Torture is doubtless overruled for the good of the tortured, but it will one day burn a very hell in the hearts of the torturers. Torture can be inflicted only by the superior. The divine idea of a superior is one who requires duty and protects, helps, delivers. Our relation to the animals is that of their superiors in the family, who require labour, it may be, but are just, helpful, protective. Can they know anything of the Father, who neither love nor rule their inferiors, but use them as a child his insensate toys, pulling them to pieces to know what is inside them? Such men, so-called of science, let them have the dignity to the fullness of its worth. Lust to know, as if a man's life lay in knowing, as if it were a vile thing to be ignorant, so vile that, for the sake of his secret hoard of facts, they do right in breaking with torture into the house of the innocent. Surely they shall not thus find the way of understanding. Surely there is a maniac thirst for knowledge as a maniac thirst for wine or for blood. He who loves knowledge the most genuinely will, with the most patience, wait for it until it can be had righteously. Need I argue the injustice? Can a sentient creature come forth without rights, without claim to well-being or to consideration from the other creatures whom they find, equally without action of their own, present in space? 
If one answer, for aught I know it may be so, where then are thy own rights, I ask? If another have none, thine must lie in thy superior power, and will there not one day come a stronger than thou? Mayst thou not one day be in Naboth's place, with an Ahab, getting up to go into thy vineyard to possess it? The rich man may come prowling after thy little ewe lamb, and what wilt thou have to say? He may be the stronger, and thou the weaker. That the rights of the animals are so much less than ours, does not surely argue them the less rights. They have little, and we have much. Ought they therefore to have less, and we more? Must we not rather be the more honourably anxious that they have their little to the full? Every gain of injustice is a loss to the world, for life consists neither in length of days nor in ease of body. Greed of life and wrong done to secure it will never work anything but direst loss. As to knowledge, let justice guide thy search, and thou wilt know the sooner. Do the will of God, and thou shalt know God, and he will open thine eyes to look into the very heart of knowledge. Force thy violent way, and gain knowledge to miss truth. Thou mayest wound the heart of God, but thou canst not rend it asunder to find the truth that sits there enthroned. What man would he be who accepted the offer to be healed, and kept alive by means which necessitated the torture of certain animals? Would he feel himself a gentleman, walking the earth with the sense that his life and conscious well-being were informed and upheld by the agonies of other lives? I hope, sir, your health is better than it has been. Thank you, I am wonderfully restored, have entered in truth upon a fresh lease of life. My organism has been nourished with the agonies of several dogs, the pangs of a multitude of rabbits and guinea-pigs, and I am aware of a marvellous change for the better. They gave me their lives, and I gave them in return worse pains than mine. The bargain has proved a quite satisfactory one. True, their lives were theirs, not mine, but then their sufferings were theirs, not mine. They could not defend themselves. They had not a word to say, so reasonable was the exchange. Poor fools! They were neither so wise nor so strong, nor such lovers of comfort as I. If they could not take care of themselves, that was their lookout, not mine, every animal for himself. There was a certain patriotic priest who thought it better to put a just man to death than that a whole nation should perish. Precious salvation that might be wrought by injustice. But then the just man taught that the rich man and the beggar must one day change places. To set the life of a dog against the life of a human being? No, but the torture of a dog against the prolonged life of a being capable of torturing him. Priceless gain, the lengthening of such a life, to the man and his friends and his country. That the animals do not suffer so much as we should, under like inflictions, I hope true, 
and think true. But is toothache nothing, because there are yet worse pains for head and face? Not a few who regard themselves as benefactors of mankind will one day be looked upon with a disapprobation which no argument will now convince them they deserve. But yet another day is coming when they will themselves right sorrowfully pour out disapprobation upon their own deeds. For they are not stones, but men, and must repent. Let them, in the interests of humanity, give their own entrails to the knife, their own silver cord to be laid bare, their own golden bowl to be watched throbbing, and I will worship at their feet. But shall I admire their discoveries at the expense of the stranger, nay, no stranger, the poor brother within their gates? Your conscience does not trouble you? Take heed that the light that is in you be not darkness. Whatever judgment mean, will it suffice you in that hour to say, My burning desire to know how life wrought in him drove me through the gates and bars of his living house. I doubt if you will add in your heart any more than with your tongue. And I did well. To those who expect a world to come, I say then, let us take heed how we carry ourselves to the creation which is to occupy with us the world to come. To those whose hearts are sore for that creation, I say, the Lord is mindful of his own, and will save both man and beast. End of chapter 12, part 2 End of the Hope of the Gospel by George MacDonald